land is your land, and this land is my land, from California to the New York Island. This is one of those stories that at first glance doesn't seem to make any sense. Woody Guthrie is one of the most iconic folk singers in U.S. history. He sang about the Dust Bowl. He sang about the Great Depression. He wrote songs about what life was like for the common, everyday American. I saw below me that golden valley. And in the middle of it all, he spent one month in the Pacific Northwest. And in 30 days, he wrote 26 songs promoting dams on the Columbia River. And the government paid him to do it. I'm gonna hit that Oregon Trail is coming fall. Hit that Oregon Trail. Which makes for quite a story. Feisty folk singer, the federal government, and songs about dams. But here's the thing. No one was telling it. Because for a long time, this story was lost. Most folks didn't even know it existed. And then four decades after it happened, a government employee in Portland, Oregon, stumbled upon something he never expected to find. And then the story sprang back to life. Where the good rain falls plenty, where the crops and orchards grow, I'm gonna hit that Oregon Trail that's coming fall. You're listening to Here in the Gorge, Stories that will change your sense of place. I'm Sarah Fox, and in this episode, we learn what happened when Woody Guthrie came to the Pacific Northwest and went to work for the government, and what it means to have a bit of our history in his words. Where the good rain falls a plenty and the crops and orchards grow, I'm gonna hit that Oregon Trail is coming fall. The best place to start this story is right back at the beginning, in Okemo, Oklahoma, with the man himself, Woody Guthrie. Uh, to start with, I was a little bit different from... I wasn't in the class that John Steinbeck called the Okies because my dad, uh, to start with, was worth about thirty-five or $40,000, and he had everything hunky-dory. Then he started having a little bad luck. In fact, our whole family had a little bit of it. I... Don't know whether it's worth talking about or not. I never do talk it much, but then... Uh, Life started out well enough for Woody. But when things got tough, they got really tough. The Guthrie family had just built a brand new home when it burned to the ground. Then Woody's 15-year-old sister died. No one ever knew for sure if it was an accident or a suicide. <clears throat> and my mother... Adam was a little bit too much for her uh, <clears throat> nerves or something. I don't know exactly how it was. But anyway, my mother died in the insane asylum at Norman, Oklahoma. Then uh, about that same time, my father mysteriously, for some reason or other, caught a fire. There's a lot of people say that he set himself far. Others say that he caught a fire accidentally. I always will think that he'd done it on purpose because he'd lost all his money. All us kids had to scatter out and be adopted by different families. I lived with a family of people. There was 11 of us. 
Talk about a tough childhood. It'd be enough to get anybody down, but not Woody. He seemed to be the kind of person who knew how to make good out of a bad situation. Well, I was uh, adopted then by another family of people that had a little more money and a little more everything, and uh, and they had a dead gum, dead gum little old bandy hen that set out on the ice box and roosted out there like she owned that whole part of town. And my job was to keep track of that cussed bandy hen. I'd have to go find her eggs, where she laid the egg, what time of day she laid the egg, bring the egg in, assort the egg, lay the egg up, tell the Miss Price, tell the lady about the egg, then go shore the hen. And then she'd go out and pet the hen and... So I thought, well, hell's bells. Rather than be a chambermaid to a bandy hen, ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to take to the highways. So Woody hit the road and started to write songs about what he saw going on in America. And in the 1930s, it was the Dust Bowl. Well, now you see this picture here. It shows you the big dust storm coming up. And, uh, you know, just to see a thing of that kind coming towards you, you wouldn't know exactly what it was because it's a freak-looking thing. You never saw anything like it before. And I'm telling you, it got so black when that thing hit, we all run into the house. We sat there in a little old room, and it got so dark that you couldn't see your hand before your face. You couldn't see anybody in the room. You could turn on an electric light bulb, a good, strong electric light bulb and that electric light bulb hanging in the room looked just about like a cigarette a burning been good to know you so long it's been good to know you this dusty old dust is Woody used to say you can only write about what you see and so that's what he did the thing about Woody Guthrie that really resonated then and, and to this day was that he really had lived uh, the life that he wrote about he wrote from personal experience Greg Vandy of KEXP in Seattle hosts The Roadhouse, a show about traditional American music. He's also spent a lot of time considering the legacy of Woody Guthrie. He made these great new songs that really described the experience of living through the Dust Bowl and the experience of being a migrant and the experience of being unemployed and, and down and out. So he really sort of resonated with those people who really looked to music as a solace in, in a really tough time. I'll sing this song, but I'll sing it again Of the place that I lived on the West Texas Plains Woody often wrote his own lyrics to traditional melodies. That's part of the folk process. It's also why folk music is an ideal way to share a story. By creating a song with a familiar melody, you're sort of giving people a head start. Like, I can sing along to this song because I know where it's going to go, and I'm really getting uh, the message of the song. Woody's music rang true to the Dust Bowl families facing tough times. And even more so, as hundreds of thousands of them fled the dust and ran smack dab into the Great Depression. Anyway, when I got to California, I seen things out there that uh, I wouldn't believe if people that I, if people had sat and tell me 
that there was hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and thousands of families of people living around under railroad bridges down along the river bottoms in the old cardboard houses. And in old California was supposed to be where you could go find a job. But Woody and the other Dust Bowl migrants figured out pretty quickly that wasn't the case. Lots of folks back east this say is leaving home every day and beating the hot old dusty way to the California line. Across the desert sands they roll trying to get out of the old dust bowl. They think they're going to a sugar bowl, but here's what they find. The police at the port of entry say, you're number 15,000 for today. Oh, if you ain't got the do-re-mi, friend, if you ain't got the do-re-mi, you better go back to beautiful Texas. In, in a big way, many of the songs that Woody Guthrie wrote and performed were protest songs against the um, establishment and the way things were that sort of kept his people down. People were hungry and homeless and hopeless. But Woody's songs gave them a voice. When it seemed like no one else cared, Woody Guthrie championed the common man. But things were about to change. With the depression of the 30s, the nation again looked hopefully to the northwest frontier, seeking opportunity in a still undeveloped country. So here comes the federal government saying, well, the only way we can figure out to fix this problem is put people to work. This is Bill Merlin. He's a retired employee of the Bonneville Power Administration, which is also known as the BPA. I'd heard that he'd found a key piece of this story in the basement of the BPA. I didn't find anything in the basement. (laughs) Okay. So maybe Bill didn't find anything in the basement. But something did happen down there. We'll get to that later. Because what I did know was that Bill Merlin was the government employee who'd rediscovered this whole story. Starting with, why did Woody Guthrie end up in the Pacific Northwest in the first place? You've got a progressive candidate for president, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who says that we need to develop some new resources, not only to help our country, but to put people to work. Government engineers say it can be done, and water power is the magic partner in making this development possible. Welcome to the golden age of dams in the Pacific Northwest. The federal government wanted to build dams in the Columbia River, and it wasn't just about jobs. They'd add navigation and flood control, And that was just the beginning, because dams meant irrigation, and irrigation meant more farmland. Prior to that, you had dry land farming. You had to depend on the rain, while this humongous river is running right straight through the middle of your cropland. And you're thinking, you know, the water's down there 50 feet. How come I can't get it? And the promise of dams in the Columbia River meant something else. Public power. It can be easy to take for granted today, but at the time, the idea of electricity for everyone was radical. You're sitting there milking your cow with a coal oil lamp, and you're trying to read your newspaper 
by coal oil in your house and you don't have a way of ironing anything except by a big piece of hot rock that you've heated up on your wood-burning stove, electricity seems like a bunch of magic coming down a wire into your house. That's not to say the dams didn't come with their own set of problems. They caused irreversible damage that we still reckon with today. But at the time, they were considered a grand and progressive idea to get the country out of trouble. Which meant, of course, not everyone liked it. There were arguments <laughs> There were arguments in the newspapers about, who are you going to send all that electricity to, the jackrabbits in the eastern Oregon desert? The federal government was going to need to do some convincing. And the man in charge of selling the idea was Stephen Kahn. Steve Kahn, who is the first public information officer for BPA, creates this movie. And if you've ever seen the movie, and I encourage you to do so, it is full of government hyperbole. The thrust of the turbine, the crescendo of the generator, humming a saga of man's triumph over a continent. Lovely writing, but hard to understand some of it. The idea of public power had to be sold county by county in Oregon and Washington. Citizens would have to vote if they wanted to adopt a public power system in their county. Unfortunately, the BPA film was a flop. But Steve Kahn didn't give up. He just decided to try again. Only this time he wants it to speak to the, air quote, common man. And he thought, well, I should get somebody who can write songs and perform songs and walk and talk over the clifftops singing songs and be part of my movie. It's a mighty hard road that my poor hand is holding. My poor feet has traveled a hot, dusty road. Out of your dust bowl and westward we rolled and your... Steve Kahn needed a folk singer. Only problem was, he didn't know any. Well, that's easily solved. He goes to a brother federal agency, the Library of Congress, and gets a hold of Alan Lomax. He asked Alan Lomax who would be a good guy for this job, and Lomax nearly like jumped through the phone line and said, I got your man, it's Woody Guthrie. California and Arizona, I make all your crops. And it's north up to Oregon, together your hops. So BPA writes a letter in April of 1941 and says we'd like to talk with you about this possible job. The thing was, there were a few parts of Woody's background that Steve Kahn and the BPA didn't know about yet. Woody Guthrie is out in Northern California, completely jobless, home, almost homeless, looking for work. He's also been writing a regular column for a communist newspaper. And he sometimes performed with a sticker on his guitar that read, This machine kills fascists. Not exactly the makings of your ideal government employee. But Steve Kahn didn't know that yet. And so... Not only do they write a letter, but they show up, complete with photographer and forms in quadruplicate. 
and leave the papers with him and say, fill these out and send them back. So I can just see Woody looking at that and saying, the heck with that. We got nothing to lose. So he piles the family into his car and practically chases the government guys back to Portland. Well, I just got up to my Newfoundland, my Newfoundland, my Newfoundland. I just got up to my Newfoundland. I'm living in the light of the morning. It's a perfect project for him. Not only was it, not only was it a job, which was his first and foremost concern, he needed a job, but he uh, loved the idea of the government doing something for common people. So he just drove up to Portland uh, without notice and sort of showed up at Khan's desk in the new BPA building. And uh, he said, here I am for the job. Well, some things have been going on in the meantime because... Which is a nice way of saying there wasn't actually a job for Woody. Khan discovered he was going to have to run this proposed employment through the Department of Interior to get approval. He didn't want to do that. He did not want to ask anybody's permission. Because even though Khan still thought Woody was the man for the job, now he also knew his background. So he found out, Steve Kahn found out, that BPA could hire Woody on a one-month temporary employment, and they wouldn't have to ask anybody. Actually, it was almost nobody. Steve says, go into the office of the administrator. You've got to get his approval to get this temporary job. Sing. Don't talk. See if you can charm your way into a one-month appointment. Long about 1929, old little farm was doing just fine. Raised a little row crop, raised some wheat, and sold it over at the county seat. Well, the plan worked. Mr. Woodrow W. Guthrie, temporary federal government employee. Information consultant, dated May 13th of 1941. That's his original employment paper from Bonneville Power. The hopes as high as we rolled along to the Columbia River up in Washington. Woody Guthrie was now on the government payroll in the Pacific Northwest, and he had one month to get to work. In order to get Woody inspired, Steve said, I'm going to put you in a government car and have you taken all the way up to Grand Coulee Dam and back and out to the coast and back, and you're going to see what the Columbia River is about. Woody and his driver toured the Columbia, with Woody in the back seat strumming his guitar and scribbling down lyrics about what he saw. Steve said later that the reason he didn't want Woody out there driving the area by himself was because he looked out the window and saw the condition of Woody's relatively new car. So he had a chauffeur. So they went all over the place looking at what was going on, the construction of the dam, the fruit orchards, the pickers, native tribes fishing on the river everything that they could think of to look at. That's how Woody got the images in his head that resulted in some of the really magical lyrics that came out of this collection. In the mystic 
Steve Kahn had picked the right guy. And in 30 days, Woody wrote 26 songs, many of which went on to become folk classics. So the Grand Coulee Dam has been done by many, many, many people. Pastures of Plenty is absolutely one of the best folk songs ever. You know, Roll on Columbia, which we all know, and it's actually the, it's the official Washington State folk song. And then Talking Columbia Blues, which has been covered many, many times. Well, Sam took the challenge in the year of 33 For the farmer and the factory and for all of you and me He said, roll along Columbia, you can ramble to the sea But river, while you ramble, you can do some work for me He was only here for a limited time, but really sort of absorbed the idea of what this, um, quote, plan, promised land was supposed to be about in terms of creating opportunity through the dam projects and public works projects. He really gave them much more than they ever could hope for, and certainly more than his $266 prorated uh, monthly salary. But just about the time Steve Kahn was sitting down to make his film, the project was stopped. Pearl Harbor was bombed, and the United States joined World War II. Dams and public power didn't need a folk artist to sing their praises because now they had a war on their side. You have a, a very readily available source of humongous amounts of electricity for smelting aluminum and welding steel. It's a natural for the war effort. On top of that, the military was grabbing up all the 16-millimeter film for reconnaissance. Steve Kahn had no way to make his film. And Woody's relationship to BPA just disappeared into the ether. And it might have stayed that way if it weren't for that one day, more than 40 years later, when Bill Merlin sat down to work in the public information office at the BPA. So I'm in there, and I screen a copy of the Columbia. The Columbia was a film the BPA made in 1948, after the end of the war. As another piece of government, let's use the word propaganda, and there in the credits at the very beginning of the movie is Woody Guthrie's name. There's a great and peaceful river in a land that's fair to see where the Douglas fir tree whispers... To Turns out Steve Kahn had finally made his film. It just happened seven years later than he'd planned. The film never got much attention. The government didn't want to be in the business of building and promoting dams anymore. So the BPA was told to destroy all its promotional materials, including films like the Columbia. But a handful of copies survived, and Bill Merlin had just stumbled across one, which meant that this story was about to get the ending it deserved. And when I saw this Woody Guthrie credit, I said, huh? Really? I know who he is. What did he do? Well, I listened to the movie. There are three songs in there. So I started looking through the film office to see if I could find any more information. Yeah, there's a file in there about how that movie was made. Oh, boy. <laughs> I think I've hit on something. Woody Guthrie may have left the Pacific Northwest, but Steve Kahn had him come to New York to record a handful of songs on a film synchronization disc. Steve had held on to that disc 
and eventually used it to make his film years later. So I started researching it. I wrote an article for the BPA new employee newsletter. And I said, okay, there may be some of you guys who have been here for 30, 40 years, 50 years, some retirees that are still alive that might remember this Woody Guthrie event that took place in 1941. If anybody knows anything, let me know. So on a Monday morning, the Oregonian published my article above the fold on the front page with a banner headline. And I am now being inundated by reporters all over the world asking me about this. People had been singing Woody's Columbia River songs for decades without realizing the story behind them. But now Bill was going to fill in the missing pieces. Most important of all, what songs did Woody write while he was with the BPA? I am looking for sheet music. That's all at the point I was looking at. Until I get a letter from Ralph Bennett, former BPA employee. And he wrote to me and he said, I've got these recordings you might be interested in because I used to work there. After leaving the BPA, Woody'd recorded some of the songs commercially. Others were on that film synchronization disc. But there was still one huge piece missing, a recording that no one even thought existed. There was no known recording of Woody Guthrie singing Roll on Columbia. Roll on Columbia, the quintessential Columbia River song. Experts believed if ever there was a recording of it, it'd been lost. And then Bill got that letter from Ralph. Ralph worked at BPA in 1947, 48. He had made copies of that movie synchronization disc that was in the BPA office and had made individual 78 records for himself on a record-cutting machine that happened to be in the basement of the BPA building. Why was it there? As it turns out, not only did Woody Guthrie record songs in New York, he recorded songs in the basement of the BPA headquarters building. Woody Guthrie would go down into this closet and slam the door and record songs. And Ralph had a mess of them. I asked him to send me a cassette tape. He said he put the needle on the records and the needle jumped around all over the place. He had to put a couple of quarters on the, on the needle in order to keep it from jumping. He sent me this cassette tape and I am leaping out of my chair. Even though everyone knew the song, no one ever heard Woody sing it. Green Douglas fir where the waters cut through. Down her wild mountains and canyons she flew. Canadian Northwest to the ocean so blue. It's roll on Columbia, roll on. Roll on Columbia, roll on. Roll on Columbia, roll on. Your power is turning our darkness to dawn. Roll on Columbia, roll on. Other great rivers add power to you. Yaki Moss Snake and the Clicky Tattoo. 
Sandy Willamette and Hood River too. Roll on, Columbia, roll on. Woody Guthrie once said, when a song or a ballad mentions the name of a river, a town, a spot, a fight, or the sound of somebody's name that you know and are familiar with, there is a sort of quiet kind of pride come up through your blood. And for anyone familiar with the Columbia River, there will always be a piece of its history, which is a piece of all of our histories, captured in 26 songs. And a quiet pride in knowing that once there was a great folk singer who came to this place and wrote down what he saw. Special thanks to Travel Oregon, who helped to fund and launch this season's Here in the Gorge podcast. Living in the dust was killing me. And to our sponsors, Portland Spirit Cruises and Events, Mount Adams Chamber of Commerce, Columbia Gorge Discovery Center, Bridgeside and Riverside Restaurants, Mary Hill Museum of Art, and Wet Planet Whitewater. A huge thanks to Bill Merlin and Greg Vandy for their time, expertise, and sleuthing skills. Long about 1939 Technical and editorial support came from Kelsey Alzheimer, Amanda Lawrence, and Lloyd Decay. And we got some extra elbow grease from Ed Yon, Katrina Sarson, David Losh, and Gardner Johnston. This episode includes music from, well, Woody Guthrie. The songs and archival audio that you heard are from the Library of Congress recordings with Woody Guthrie and Alan Lomax. They were recorded in 1940. And from Woody Guthrie's Columbia River Collection, released in 1988 from Smithsonian Folkways. Well, Oregon State is mighty fine If you're hooked onto the power line The Here in the Gorge podcast is a program partner of the nonprofit Gorge Owned. Members of Gorge Owned contribute every day to our sense of this place. So thank you. If you like what you hear, find out more at hereinthegorge.com. That's H-E-A-R in the gorge.com. And if you haven't already, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. It's free and it's easy. You don't get to say that very often. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Sarah Fox, and we're here in the gorge. Ain't 
no country extra fine if you ain't on to the power line. Well, I guess I come to the end of the line. I guess I come to the end of the line. I guess I come to the end of the line. I guess I come to the end of the line.